You're listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Okay, so let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright of the Non-Zero Podcast. You guys, as you know, are Danny Besner and Derek Davison of the American Prestige Podcast. And this is an episode of both podcasts. Uh, uh, we've decided we're going to get together every couple of months, if not more frequently, talk about foreign affairs. To further complicate things, this is a hybrid uh, edition of this uh, of this dual podcast because we taped a conversation late last week, uh, but before we got it posted, uh, Hamas attacked Israel, and we decided um, that was a sufficiently seismic event that that we it would be kind of strange to make no mention of it uh, on a foreign affairs uh, podcast posted uh, now. So reassembling uh, that that conversation is is at the back end of this. That's still there. Uh, if people stay with us long enough, but, uh, now we're going to talk about, uh, Israel, Palestine. Is there anything I left out that you guys want to throw in? I don't think so. That sounds I about right. Covered it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and you guys have covered it, uh, I guess pretty thoroughly. There are other things on your podcast feed on the American prestige podcast feed about this, including, I gather an interview with Rashid Khalidi of, uh, Columbia. Yes, uh, yes, that uh, we just recorded that, uh, so that should be out. I think by the time this, uh, yeah. yes, this comes out. So check that out, please, please. So, so I don't know. Uh, I don't know how to even uh, what to say first. Obviously, it's horrible on a number of levels, and make it more so. Um, I don't know. Uh, I have other things to say, but uh, I'll give you well, a but- chance. Yeah. Well, I'm just curious how have people been been reacting in 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 your in your orbits of establishmentarian journalists. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think you missed <laughs> you missed the part of my career where where I was expelled from that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, in all seriousness, how have you noticed people responding in in sort of the the, well, the the? I mean, on my Twitter feed, you know, I have. Uh, You know, I have I follow a diversity of people, you know, I guess the frustration for me always with these kinds of things is that, um, you know, naturally, understandably, there's a lot of motion on both sides. uh, And there isn't uh, sometimes much tolerance for an attempt to do kind of a more detached clinical assessment of what's going on. and if you uh, sometimes if you try to do one, you get accused of, uh, you know, siding with one side. I mean, like with Ukraine, it was like if you point to NATO expansion and you think that may have played a causal role in making uh, invasion more likely, uh, then you have to immediately add, I condemn the invasion. I'm against invasions. Um, and this is kind of a similar thing. And of course, uh, you know, I obviously do condemn. Uh, you know, massacres at music festivals, which is one thing that happened here. Uh, but I, 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 you know, my, uh, you know, I would still like to to talk about uh, root causes of this, how it happened, what what we might learn, make it uh, less likely to happen in the future and stuff like that. I don't know. That's my. Well, it, I mean, it just seems like the entire North Atlantic world is lining up behind Israel and this is going to encourage Israel 
particularly the Netanyahu government, to take even more extreme measures. I mean, th this is the thing. Like, I feel like the American discourse is still, uh, and tell me if I'm wrong, I might be wrong, is still like steeped in this like 1990s moment, even as people have accepted that the two-state solution is basically a non-starter. There's like, if we just talk it out and get something to go, but in, in actuality, when the empire lines up behind you, um, and in this case, it's really lining up behind Israel. It'll just encourage Israel to do whatever the hell it wants, frankly. And what it wants to do is nothing good from the perspective of international law or humanitarian concern. So it just seems to me like that's the, that's the actual reality, is that it's it's encouraging ethnic cleansing, perhaps. And that's that's where the discussion should should start. And, um, yeah, yeah I, I don't I don't I mean, I don't think you have to condone what happened or. No, of course not. It, I don't to just, to just say no. I, I, but I mean, this is. The, I'm not talking about you, Danny. It's this is the, the question that that you know, you're the the demand. You know, do you, uh, condone or condemn whatever uh, happened? And I, I'm saying, unless you've lived, you know, a week in Gaza under the current circumstances, under the way that things have been for the last 17 years. I don't think you need to have an opinion on that uh, to acknowledge that when you bottle people up in a place like this, you you bar the doors, you don't let them leave to get medical treatment, you don't let them, you give them four hours of electricity a day, you give them, uh, you know, barely any clean water. I know the Israelis have said they've now cut water off. It's that's that's a cruel joke. I mean, these, they didn't have water and electricity uh, to begin with, except in the barest sense. Um, you don't have to, to have an, an opinion on what happened to acknowledge that this is the kind of thing that re results from that. You cannot keep people in conditions like this in perpetuity. And this is what it, one of the things that I think is going to be uh, the biggest, uh, one of the biggest repercussions of what's happened is the Israeli government has spent years, uh, decades, you could argue, at least a couple of decades, trying to make the occupation as painless for the Israeli public as possible uh, to create a situation where the occupation is just kind of out of sight, out of mind. It's managed. We don't have to worry about it. We don't have to worry about keeping these people in uh, inhumane conditions in, in apartheid conditions. We can just do as we like. Don't you worry your, your pretty little heads about it. We got it under control. And maybe that's been punctured now by what's happened. And, and again, I, I'm not condoning what's happened, but I, I don't, think it's condoning it to say this is this is it this is the inevitable result of of what has been going on uh for really 56 years at this point but certainly you know if we talk specifically about gaza since the the blockade was imposed in 2006 2007 so i i that's that's where i'm at on that particular issue yeah i think um you know it's it's predictable that when you keep people under occupation uh th there will be there will be violent uprisings it usually happens i mean strictly speaking of course gaza isn't under uh, occupation in the sense that the west bank is but this uh this economic blockade uh you know uh makes makes it feel a lot like an occupation i mean especially given the fact that you know, periodically there are these conflicts so every once in a while uh a bunch of people in gaza get killed and usually and, and this is what really kind of worry a number of things worry me right now but you know traditionally it seems like when there is uh, a, a conflict a conflict breaks out with gaza 
the ratio of killed Palestinians to killed Israelis is what, five to one, 10 to one. And I gather that, you know, Israel kind of wants to send that message. And now in this case, you know, that would imply thousands and thousands of, of Palestinians um, yet to be killed. Uh, but, you know, yeah, yeah, I mean, this is this is a good example of something you can get screamed at for saying right now, of course, is that uh, that it's just it's just a it, it's just a predictable thing that if you don't solve a problem like this of people living under occupation and being deprived uh, of basic uh, rights and 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 basic uh, things you need in life, um, things like this are going to happen. That doesn't mean you can't. Uh, condemn them. In fact, I, I, I would also separate from, uh, you know, the horror of imagining a bunch of people at a music concert being killed. There's, there's kind of the, the tactical question of like, uh, does Hamas understand that they'd probably be better off if they had focused at least to somewhat a greater extent on military targets and not, you know, I think it's just a last ditch effort. Like to me, this is the desperate move. Uh, it is it is like an all out desperate move. I, I, it, the strategic objectives that that one could devise just seem impossible to achieve. And I, I wanted to ask, Bob, who is doing the screaming? Like like, I mean, just like American mainstream well, people. Well, yeah, I mean, I follow uh, a bunch of people on Twitter who would scream at you for this. I have I have the only thing I've done on Twitter. So the defense minister, Gallant. And he's not even one of the two craziest guys in the Israeli cabinet, right? There's Ben Gavir, and then there's the other guy, one of whom had a, uh, a like a Smoltrich, portrait of Baruch. Smoltrich, the finance minister. Yeah, yeah, one of whom was a Baruch Goldstein fan. Um, uh, that's Ben Gavir, I think. Uh, yeah, uh, no, both, maybe both of them, but it, it, Ben Gavir was definitely a he had like a, a, a portrait of Goldstein up in it, and of course Goldstein massacred 22 Palestinians. So, so I mean, one thing that establishes is like. Uh, you know, this talk of their animals there. Well, there are people behaving like animals on both sides. But but um, uh, the and, and this that speaks to this thing. So there's this quote from not one of the two craziest uh, guys in the Israeli cabinet. The defense minister he says, I have ordered a complete siege on the Gaza Strip. There will be no electricity, no food, no fuel. Everything is closed. Uh, Derek, you might say things were already almost that bad. But anyway, he says we are fighting human animals and we act accordingly. So I quote tweeted and said, so he's saying Israel will, will treat all two million residents of Gaza like animals, even leaving aside international law, morality, et cetera. It's not in Israel's long term security interest to think this way or talk this way. And that, you know, that you can say that No, you're not going to get screamed at if you frame it kind of, I think, carefully. And 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 and, and that got some traction. But uh I mean, there's some, well, as you know, there's some very animated things being said on both sides. Um, I mean, it's just, I, I would. I, Derek, you go, you go. Well, I, it, to, to respond, Bob, to what, what you said earlier, I, there's I, I, one thing I, I, we should be clear about is that they did attack military targets. They attacked the Ariz mm -hmm. checkpoint, which is the, the bottleneck that, that the Israeli military uses to keep people out of Israel and, in fact, was, was closed for several weeks last month. Uh, that led to it, which led to a great deal of unrest and, and violence uh, as a result, because that's one of the few economic lifelines for people uh, in Gaza is to to go through Erez and, and work in Israel. Uh, what I what I would say 
you know, to the music festival, obviously attacking a, a people at a music festival is a horrific act and it, it's condemnable. The fact that the, there was a music festival being held within, you know, just a you know very short distance from the world's largest open air prison camp is, I think, part of what I was saying earlier, the notion that uh, this has been carefully curated for for many years now to be uh, uh, the occupation i mean to be something that people don't think about anymore and so uh, you know it's it's not weird i guess to have a music festival and and celebrate uh, that close to a, a place where horrifying things are happening on a daily basis it's just such a, a strange and I, i'm not i'm absolutely not saying that that justifies attacking people at a music festival i just think it's it, it speaks to the whole uh just difficulty of this entire situation and and the 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 way that it's been kind of shunted aside while you have people living under deplorable conditions every day and that tension building and building and building and nobody seeming to to really give that much thought uh, well, uh until something like this happens you know this is the, the tension of colonialism going back to the beginning of colonialism and it just seems odd in the 21st century because most of the basically colonial projects have been completed successfully in favor of the colonizers. If we're talking about, you know, the Western hemisphere and in, in favor of national liberation movements, if we're talking about the global South, it's just it's almost like an atavistic conflict. So also people don't even have the framework to understand this colonial um, project because it's an it's an unfinished project. And I think that's what the defense minister was essentially saying, you know, that 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 this is a colonial project that he's going to try to, to complete to some regard. It seems yeah. very, like, actually interesting if you said and not interesting, very explicable and not very complicated. If you know anything about the history of 20th century colonialism and decolonization, it's just most people don't know or appreciate that history in 2023. Yeah, the um, you know, you were mentioning that. Yeah, I guess I guess it was you, Dana, you called it an act of desperation. Um, there is, I, I mean, there is, uh, there are people saying that that there are other things behind that it was more calculated than you might think, and that uh, part of the idea is to disrupt this effort to consolidate uh, ties or establish ties between Saudi Arabia. And Israel, you know, this thing that started as the Abraham Accords and now they already become... have ties. I just don't buy that at all. They well, just, I'll they tell you though, facto, but I'd you like know. to, I mean, and you know, and of course the Wall Street Journal did this piece saying Iran helped plan this. That has been, uh, I don't know what the status of that report is. I'm agnostic for now. Certainly debunked. Israel and, and America are it's saying they have no debunked. evidence. Yeah, Israel, the Israeli government says they don't have any evidence. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it could come out. It just it's no evidence yet. Certainly. I mean, they're not saying this is not true, but but I would say a couple of things. First of all, uh, that would make sense from both Iran's and Hamas's point of view, because part of the Biden plan with Saudi Arabia is they give a lot of money to the Palestinian Authority, which, of course, Hamas's rival for influence among the, the Palestinian people. So they would they would be happy to disrupt it. Iran uh, certainly would. And, and, and the reason I want to talk about this is because it's a good example of the way U.S. policy proceeds uh, without anyone stopping and asking, wait a second, how is this going to be viewed by these various actors? 
might one of them find it very threatening and do something? Almost reminds me of NATO expansion in Ukraine, right? Like not putting yourself in Russia's shoes and ask, like, what are their national security interests? And, and let, me, let me just finish on the Iran point. You got to remember from Iran's point of view, okay, this deal, I mean, it's being the way it's being described as, well, we would establish a counterbalance to Iran by drawing Saudi Arabia into uh, the, the, you know, the U.S.-Israeli camp. Well, Iran's not going to look at it as some benign counterbalance. They're going to look at it as a profound threat because part of the deal would be a security commitment of the U.S. to join Saudi Arabia in a war with, for example, Iran. This is very threatening to Iran. Did anybody talk about that? I, I didn't even think about it clearly, but obviously before you do a policy like this, you should ask, is this going to be thought of as a sufficiently grave threat uh, for someone to try to cause a lot of trouble to derail it? Now, I don't know if Iran helped plan it. I would guess they were at least given a heads up. I, but who knows? But the point is, it is another example of heedless U.S. policy, it seems to me. So t two quick things. I don't think the U.S. gives a shit about the Middle East and, and, and really hasn't for a, a, a while. Um, so I don't think there there's, you know, the best and the brightest aren't really thinking about this. I think they want to basically disengage from the region in general. And what do you think this suggests about how the U.S. cares about the Palestinian issue? Does it care at all? I mean, I think the answer to these questions is very clear. And once those two basically structuring principles are taken into account, this all becomes very clear. They don't really care about the Middle East anymore. That's just the well, truth. They would like to have some engagement with Saudi Arabia. They would like Europe to continue to get oil from the region, but they don't really care that much. And I think certainly the entire history of the last 30, 40 years suggests that the U.S., uh, that its officials don't really care about the Palestinian problem. Probably at some level, they want it to be, quote unquote, solved. Um, so from that perspective, this all becomes very clear to me. Yeah, I think U.S. policymakers don't care about the Palestinians. I do think they continue to care about the Middle East. Uh, a security commitment Much to Saudi Arabia likely. is a huge thing. And and Much also, but American politics compel them to care, right? I mean, the, the Israel lobby makes it an important issue to American politicians. That That's, you know. It makes I, support of Israel by giving them money and weapons and right. to the American. That's pretty much it. That to me is the foundation of it right now. U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, it's like ensure Israel is extremely strong. That's well, that, that's the policy. And what and and kind of any, anything that flows from that is secondary or tertiary in, in my mm -hmm. read of the strategic calculus. Basically, the way I would put it, like the State Department Arabists who were pretty influential at points during the Cold War have no influence any longer and probably don't really exist. And so you have this. Everything flows from that, as I see it. I don't know, Derek, if you disagree. I mean, I you know, they're doing foreign policy on behalf of the Israeli government. That's what the Abraham Accords were. That's what this deal with Saudi Arabia will be, especially because, I mean, the Abraham Accords were relatively cheap. The U.S. had to, you know, recognize Morocco's claim on Western Sahara. It had to sell some, uh, agree to sell F-35s, which I still don't think it's we've actually done uh, to the UAE. So that was relatively cheap. Uh, but we still bought those normalization deals. This this agreement that's on the table with Saudi Arabia, which is a blanket defense pact, uh, standing up a Saudi nuclear program that includes uranium enrichment, which is a proliferation risk. Uh, that's that's like really giving a king's ransom, essentially, yeah. uh, to the Saudis to to buy 
their friendship with Israel. So, uh, I mean, yeah, I think that uh, there's still a there's still a pull here, and I don't know uh, how you know how you define what that pull is. If it's the desire for stable oil prices, if it's the you know impetus to uh, race to Israel's uh, you know aggrandizement at every possible turn, there's a lot of things going on there. Uh, Bob, to your to your point, I, I I do think that geopolitics matter here to some extent. I've seen people say. You know, Hamas isn't worried about some deal with the guy. And I think that belittles Hamas to some extent. It, it treats them as this kind of uh, provincial, these provincial backwater hicks who don't really know what's going on in the world or whatever, care. I, I don't think that's true. Certainly, I think that the, the you, you look at this from a Palestinian perspective, this is another piece of whatever little leverage the Palestinians had to negotiate a state going away, disappearing, being taken by the U.S. and, and Israel and, and the Saudis, uh, which, you know, that, that piece being the idea of Israeli normalization with, with the Arab states coming after the creation of a Palestinian state. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know how you, you weigh that against 17 years of brutality and, and deprivation in Gaza. I don't know how you weigh it against uh, the ongoing deprivations of the occupation for over 50 years with a government in power right now that has made it its mission to do what is essentially a slow rolling annexation of the West Bank and East Jerusalem, diverting resources, exactly. diverting resources that that, you know, people ask, well, how did this happen? You know, how did they miss the intelligence? How did they uh, you know, why was the response so slow? They have diverted military resources away from Gaza to defend settler mobs that, that descend on Palestinian villages in the West Bank and burn homes and kill people. Uh, this is the priority for this government. You mentioned Ben Gvir and, and Smotrich. This is their priority, and they've been given, Netanyahu has given them uh, largely, by and large, control over this, uh, over the occupation, and they dictate policy. And what they want is to take over the West Bank. They want to take control of Al-Aqsa and the uh, that site, the Temple Mount or Al-Aqsa in East Jerusalem. They want this is their priority, and that's that cannot be ignored. You know, if you talk about the Saudi issue, yeah, that, that's probably there at some level. But I think any analysis of why this happened and why it happened now has to start with the occupation, and and in particular, uh, if you want to get really immediate about it, has to start with what this particular Israeli government has been doing for, you know, 10 months now or whatever it's been. Oh, oh, sure. I mean, that's the the driving energy at some level. But I think if you ask, you know, why now? Why so big? Why so elaborate and so on? I think it's quite possible that the Saudi thing uh, figures. And, and I'll say one more thing about that. Uh, China, not so long ago, orchestrated a kind of incipient rapprochement between Iran and Saudi Arabia. That was big and potentially very constructive. And one thing the Biden administration is doing with its plan is dismantling that. Okay, there's tension between it's the trying, Biden plan yeah. and Abraham Accords on the one hand and trying to establish rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and Iran on the other. And, you know, that is the big rift in the region. That That is, that is the place where war devastating, horrible, regional, even world war could break out between, on the one hand, kind of Iran, Syria, Hezbollah, so on, and 
you know, if the Arabs are lining up with uh, the U.S. and Israel with all of that. And it's just, the, you know, we threw that away. You know, I, I, it wouldn't surprise me if that was part of the motion, uh, uh, motivation of the Biden peace plan, because the Biden peace plan really, I didn't hear about it until after China did this, right? And then, and it's as if Biden is like, oh, you think you can be the big player in this region and bring peace? No, we'll show you. We'll step in and fuck everything up the way we always do. And uh, and and the other thing it illustrates, I think, um, did we just lose uh, Danny? Um, uh, he seems to be making yeah, a, 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 yeah, a heartfelt effort to return. Um, but the other thing it illustrates is I don't think, the you know, China was apparently perceived as kind of an honest broker by both sides. The U.S. just can't do that. It can't it can't do it between Iran, Saudi Arabia. It can't do it between Israel and the Palestinians. And I, I mean, it, it's just not politically able, I think, uh, to do it. And, you know, you, I guess, uh, Danny, you said finally people are realizing the two state solution is is uh, a non-starter. Well, the people you hang out with are. But the official establishment line uh, uh, parroted by all kinds of elite journalists and think tankers is. We have to get back to the two-state solution, whereas that's not going to happen. Could I just suggest something? So, like, there are points, if you study the history of U.S. foreign policy, when there's just, like, strategic discalculus in a region, where something is just not that important for the state for a variety of reasons, and there's just not a lot of thought put into it. To me, that is basically U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East for the last six, seven years. I don't think it's an area of strategic concern. I don't think they really care, again, beyond making sure Israel is powerful. And this is why you see a lot of, you know, like if you if you look at this rationally, it doesn't make much sense. But I think if you look at it from the perspective of a, a complicated state that has interests and invests resources and invests time and effort, it's pretty clear the U.S. doesn't really care that much about the Middle East any longer. And it wants to make a strategic pivot to great power competition for a bunch of different reasons. And I think this is just an era of strategic discalculus in right, the region. But, but the one thing you mentioned uh, that you acknowledge that the U.S. wants to remain on the side of Israel is very consequential. I mean, why Absolutely. do you think Trump? Why do you think Trump assassinated Suleiman, Su, uh, Suleimani and almost started a war? You know. Well, I uh, think because what I think why he did that, I don't think there was a strategic calculus. I think that no, morning, not not from that, that morning, he got he got a report and he said we could kill this guy. And he goes, "Who's this guy?" And they say he's an evil guy from Iran who was part, uh, head of the Quds Force, and Trump said, kill him. I think that's literally as far as the strategic calculus. Well, why wasn't he killing some guy in Taiwan or, or, or you know, I mean, why, but why but he that guy? Ha- he, he, I think, Bob, you're looking for rationality where there is none. No, I'll, I think give this is I'll give you some. I'll give you some. Do you think that Trump at no point thought, you know, Sheldon Adelson might not mind this. Sheldon Adelson was this massive donor who has literally... Literally advocated <laughs> dropping a nuclear bomb in the Iranian desert, quote, just to show them what we have. Well, with, with I mean, Trump, I mean, maybe one of the advisors. Not just Adelson, Adelson though. It's, like it's not just Adel- It's not just the Adelson and the, and the Israel folks. With with Soleimani, I'm sure that that Trump had 
uh, his Saudi pals in his ear saying this is yeah, a bad yeah. guy. Yeah, yeah. He should be taken out. I'm sure that Jared Kushner was in his ear because Jared Kushner had apparently, as it turns out, two billion reasons uh, to want to do whatever the Saudis. Uh, <laughs> so corrupt. This country is so done. And, and so, so I'm sure corrupt. he had Kushner in his ear saying, hey, you know, uh, pops, let's let's knock this guy yeah, out. No, the Saudi and there's more and more money from the Gulf influencing U.S. policy. That's all true. It's just that the one thing danny acknowledged is that we care about israel and i'm saying that alone is totally. a powerful thing yeah it because, the entire thing. because it for example entire. china does this potentially constructive thing and we just can't live with that right we cared enough to do this this uh this crazy biden initiative i mean which, we we care about the great power aspect of it too we care about china looking like the peacemaker right. like yes. doing the things yes. that we're supposed to do that's the united states job we're the boss of the world we're supposed to define the security agenda for everybody yeah there's uh, a but bob i think here as well I to agree. go back to your your point about the two-state solution this this to me uh for for most of the people i, I don't want to say all but for most of the people who still harp on the two-state solution because they haven't looked at a map in 20 years so they haven't like checked back in on what's actually going on in the region it is an indication that people just don't care about this issue it's like that's the muscle memory the two-state solution two-state solution two-state solution and they look at it in a superficial way you have two peoples there have to be two states that's it and and that's all the thought that goes into it so i do think that's that's to some extent evidence of just a lack of interest or concern in israel palestine yeah, and foreign affairs generally. I mean, Americans, like many people, probably in many countries, don't care that much about foreign policy unless, you know, suddenly Americans are getting killed in large numbers. So, yeah, for most people, it's like two-state solution seems to make sense. It does in principle. I could I could I could imagine a version of it that that uh that would be better than what we got. It's just that that's not gonna happen. And and we've gotten to a point where it can't happen. Um, but look, I I, I want to emphasize. Uh, I, I agree that Cold War competition with China is one thing driving uh, Biden's policy in the Middle East. Uh, the the influence of Persian Gulf states is as well. And then there's Israel. Uh, my point is, as a practical matter, we are very engaged in the Middle East and we're going to stay that way uh, because, um, you know, uh, the, those three considerations tend to align uh, and and point to the same set of like Biden policies and push us in the same direction. So uh, anyway, I don't know. It's depressing. It's very depressing. It's extraordinarily depressing. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I it's going to be. I think it, what Israel's response is going to be truly terrible. I, I I I I see that forthcoming. Well. You know, that's why, I mean, again, as a tactical matter. And look, I understand resistance movements get in the habit of killing civilians uh, because, you know, violent resistance movements, which, again, right or wrong, tend to spring up in, in uh, situations like this. They get in the habit of killing civilians because that's often the only thing available to them. They don't they just don't have the power to take on the military in a in a in a significant way. It's just at this time, somehow. Uh, through a combination of planning and resources, they actually uh, did mount a serious challenge and and uh, to a number of military bases. But um, uh, the uh, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen. Do you uh, do you guys think it could go a lot wider? I mean, uh, and, and even there's no obvious interaction with Russia with the Ukraine war to my mind. 
but maybe I'm missing something. Uh, I hope there's no kind of synergy between them. I well, don't think so. I mean, yeah, you know, the Russian so. response has been uh, shaded, I think, toward the Palestinians. That's probably an artifact of Ukraine because Russia's main, you know, Russia's orientation has gone away from the West and toward, you know, com- countries like Saudi Arabia and, and the UAE. So they've been uh, a little less supportive of Israel than I, I think you could have expected in, in you know, prior to that conflict. Um, I mean, in terms of expansion, the, the obvious thing to watch for is is the, the Lebanese-Israeli border and whether uh, Hezbollah is going to get involved uh, on some level. There have been, there was an infiltration just today uh, by I think Islamic jihad fighters that the Israelis say they stopped, um, and there've been exchanges of fire across the border, artillery, and now I think some helicopter uh, strikes by the Israelis on on southern Lebanon. So that's that's certainly something to watch. Hezbollah is is constrained to some extent, I think, by Lebanese politics. It's constrained by the fact that it's it's spread a little bit thin, uh, given that it's still operating in Syria. Uh, so I, I don't know th- uh, that there's uh, I don't know that the chances of them seriously getting involved in a major way are uh, all that high. But that's where I would look first if you're if you're talking about could this uh, metastasize. Yeah, it looks like so far Lebanon is focusing their fire on what is it? Shaba Farms, which is a small area where they have a claim, a territorial claim. And I would think if they can confine it to that, uh, that would be good news in effect. Um, but, uh, yeah, um, I mean, it's, you know, if, if it remains this sort of like occasional artillery barrage back and forth, I, I think that's one thing. It's, it's another, if it turns into a, to a ground war or something. So can anything good come of this even in the long no. run? I mean, yeah, because in terms of American political awareness, I mean, you've got Ilhan Omar tweeting that she stands with the Israeli people and that's kind of all she says so far, at least. Right. So it doesn't, it doesn't seem like. Uh, the kind of awareness uh, of, you know, the plight of the Palestinians that you might like to see is is spreading like wildfire in America right now. Bob, maybe we could actually end on this question. So, like, I think a, a major theme of our discussions is going to be international law. <laughs> so when are you going to give up on international law, Bob? Never. Never. It's the only what do you think hope. to suggest about it, or or, or or is there anything we could learn about or about that, or is this just the usual? It doesn't matter if you're the hegemon who have the, who, or, and or have the hegemon behind you, and the United States decides the state of exception, and Israel's in the state of exception, and that's that. Um, I I worry increasingly. You know, my view is there was a golden moment right after the Cold War when the U.S. had huge normative power probably had the power to like really establish the norm of complying with the international law, at least the one against transborder aggression. Uh, And it even worked out for a few years during the first Bush administration. But then we ourselves started violating that law uh, more than once and everything fell apart, including U.S. uh, Russia relations. I thought there was a chance when will a chance come again? What worries me is that it will take another conflagration. I mean, when you look at it, like World War I led to the League of Nations, highly imperfect thing, but a catastrophe of that magnitude did lead to an interesting experiment. World War II led to the UN, highly imperfect, but better than the League of Nations. Again, huge catastrophe leads to a serious rethink about, you know, international institutions and international law. I worry that uh, 
you know, it's going to take another catastrophe before people realize that it, it would actually be in America's interests and the interests of the other powers to establish rules of the road that everyone abides by. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, the, 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 yeah. po the powerful nations that have the power to establish, help establish these norms of respecting the laws, unfortunately, are the ones that can get away with not respecting uh, the law. And it's tempting to do that in the short, short run and I think stupid in, in the long run. But as you, you know, yeah, go ahead. No, sorry, Bob. I, I mean, I, I, I don't want to be in a total, totally downer note. And I think if you want to try to find something to hope for, it comes in uh, something I talked about earlier, which is this uh, years-long effort to push the occupation out of the consciousness of really anybody, policymakers in the West, uh, you know, anybody around the world watching, but m most particularly out of the minds of the Israeli public, uh, and to, to say that this is being managed and we don't, don't ever have to resolve it. Uh, we can keep it going like this forever. And that, uh, maybe that, that can't be sustained anymore. Maybe that myth, uh, has been done away with permanently, in which case, something will have to change whether that changes is goes in a uh it's going to be a very negative direction certainly in the short run i don't know what it'll be uh in the long run but um you know that's the thing to hope for that it'll eventually that somewhere down the line this will lead to to positive change in that particular space so, you hope so. We... i mean yeah go no, ahead sorry. no you go you go no i just gonna say it, it's a Again, I mean, you know, catastrophes can lead to fundamental rethinks. And maybe this one will, you know, on a, on a regional level, a rethink of Israel-Palestine. Not that, not that there's super easy solutions at this point. But, um, you know, the sad thing is uh, the catastrophe has not nearly uh, unfolded completely. I mean, uh, I, I just think we're going to see thousands and thousands. Uh, killed in Gaza, including more Israelis, because I think they're going in on the ground and uh, uh, it's not going to be good. What were you going to say, Danny? I was going to say we should end by singing the international. <laughs> <laughs> As you know, I'm a neoliberal shill, so I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, what, what would that be? The Chilean national anthem? What do neoliberal shills sing? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. Uh, we, we, need a, we need a good anthem. Um, we promise to come up with one by the next uh, the next episode, folks, of uh, of non-zero meets American prestige. But there is more to come on this episode. There's a whole another conversation that's about to unfold after we uh, sign off. So you're welcome. <laughs> um, double wait. double the episode, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We are uh, we're nothing if not generous. Wouldn't we all three agree that that's true of us? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I definitely feel like I'm a generous person. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I feel that you are too. Danny, I'm I'm on the fence about. Yeah, <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> uh, so, uh, okay. So thanks. Uh, and uh, again, uh, there's more to come on this conversation. And, uh, and then the three of us will be back in some uh, uh, undetermined number of... Uh, yeah, in a couple of months. Yeah. I think. Okay. All right. Thanks, everybody. Yep. Thanks, everybody, for listening. See you around.
Hello, hey, Bob. And, How you guys doing? Danny, doing I good. see you all the time. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so what is this we're doing? Uh, we know what well, one thing we can say for sure is not the last time we're going to do it, right? Well, this is going to be a. Uh, the three of us are going to do this. Well, I uh, mean, you know, let's see how it goes. But <laughs> if, if it dissolves yeah, in computer yeah, acrimony, <laughs> we won't do it again. But we're thinking about doing it again in, in a couple of months, and then a couple of months after that, and a couple of months yeah. after that, and, and so you know, yeah, regular updates. See what we're all up to. You know, catch up with some old friends, talk about foreign policy, talk about what's going on. Yeah, like normal world. people do. Normal people sit around and talk about. Foreign yeah, we're policy. just going to be like right. normal people, right? <laughs> classic normal sure. people behavior very normal especially right. as we're heating up into like it's like the super bowl now we're entering the, right. the presidential election space so there'll be a lot to talk about both politically and in terms of u.s foreign policy and you right. know what we should do about taiwan and all those good things okay so this is uh so i have a podcast called the non-zero podcast associated with my non-zero newsletter you guys have a podcast called american prestige uh which has a corresponding substack and uh, this is this is a a, pro a product of both, right? This is like a joint endeavor, Lapeer yeah, on it's a, both, right? It's what right. they call in Hollywood. We're we're doing a co-pro. It's a crossover. A crossover. Yeah. It's like when the X Men fought the Fantastic Four, or so, as my generation would put it, when people from Green Acres wound up on uh, pe showed up on Petticoat Junction. Oh, that's, that's what I was thinking. That's, that's where yeah, I was. Yeah, right. It. Yeah, yeah. You watched that when you were one year old or something? Not even. <laughs> Not even. Um, no, that was. Uh, I think that was that even was behind the, the times for syndication. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so we're going to talk about foreign policy, and I think the chemistry will be good. We know each other. We've talked before. You guys are. We're all skeptics of American foreign policy. I think, to put it mildly. Uh, you guys are probably to my left. I mean, especially Danny, who within five minutes will giving me a lecture on Marxist doctrine, I'm sure, as <laughs> typically happens in our conversations. Again, a very normal thing for people to do when they Yeah, this out. is just what normal people yeah. do. Totally. It's like, you know, it's like Taylor Swift, Super Bowl, Basin Superstructure, Dialectical Materialism, the, the usual American conversation. Um, and... Uh, I don't know where to begin. There's so much disenchantment among us with American foreign well, policy. Well, Bob, I actually had a question for you that I was thinking about yesterday. Uh -huh. uh, and and maybe we could start here because I think it relates to, you know, just sort of a meta question, which is how do you you've been a critic of U.S. foreign policy for so long. And, and how do you do it without becoming just incredibly black pilled and disenchanted? It's actually a struggle. You know, you have those moments when like you're under a lot of stress from other sources and you just you like tune in to like Twitter and you see like a Michael McFall tweet or something. And it's just like I'm living in crazy land. This is cra I mean, you know, it's funny. I taped uh, a few days ago and posted yesterday a conversation with Lyle Goldstein. You probably know who he is, right? I this, listened uh, to the conversation. It was really good. Everyone yeah. checked it out. And it's like, and it's like, on the one hand, it's radically different from what you're generally getting about uh, what a war with China over Taiwan would be like. On the other hand, it's just common sense. He's just like, let's do the math. Let's look at the incentives. And, and this guy's a total expert on this stuff. 20 years at the Naval War College. And like, 
this is sanity. This is common sense, but it, it it's totally unlike what what you hear, you know, anywhere, MSNBC, CNN, you know, mainstream, whatever. Right. So it's hard. That's why we turn to each other for therapeutic support. <laughs> <laughs> because it's, it's funny because like I think about it and there's only so many times I could write the same article, you know, which is like the same thing keeps happening. Like mm-hmm. we have a rack and then there's another intervention. Everyone gets behind that intervention. That intervention goes bad and that will never do another intervention. Then there's another intervention and it's the entire right. thing happening again. And it's just the, the, the sort of disenchantment and the, and the anger and the frustration is just, you know, I, I, I'm no, no spring chicken, but I, sometimes I think, am I going to be doing this for another 40 years? Like just banging my head against the wall. And, and it, it's, it's, it's just sometimes such a frustrating experience. Yeah. But the good news is that slowly they're taking the people who have been right over time and promoting them to positions of influence. For example, Jeffrey Goldberg is now editor of the Atlantic. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Somebody who's been right about so many things. Virtually everything. I mean, you know, that that Saddam Al Qaeda connection. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he, he got it. Out. He got it right. Yeah. So I don't know, <laughs> but we're not bitter. I, I think we should be uh, uh, this should be like a ha- the, like the BBC's happy pod that they publish BBC on has a happy Saturdays. Pod? The BBC has a happy if you, if you subscribe to their like world report podcast, which is actually not bad as MSM stuff goes. You know, a couple updates a day. Um, on the weekend they have the happy pod where they have good news, and I think that should be our vibe. Wasn't happiness studies just proven bullshit though? Like, I, I love how all of these like nudge things and happiness studies aren't they all based on fraud? I mean, Bob, you you started not started, but I first became familiar with you through evolutionary psychology. But like, isn't isn't a lot of this stuff now like under serious <laughs> serious duress to say the least? The last 20, 30 years of psychological study, I wouldn't say evolutionary psychology is uh i mean in general there's been a replication crisis and i don't doubt that uh you know studies i cited in in my book uh on evolutionary psychology haven't panned out that's been a problem in psychology generally um including some of the happiness stuff which generally has come under the rubric of positive psychology some of that yeah but but again that's not the kind of thing we bring up on our happy pie yeah that's kind of a downer (laughs) danny Sorry about that. The happy yeah, on, supports man. happiness studies. You're yeah. harshing the harshing the vibe. So um I don't know what uh where are we on foreign policy? So I I mean speaking of what we were just talking well, about. Well I just saw yeah. this week uh we're building the border wall again. So like I saw nothing, that this morning. Literally nothing has changed. We're building the border wall. We gotta keep the the the, the bad people out and uh we're carving through i think they had to waive 26 federal laws probably most of them environmental so that they could build this incredibly destructive wall that goes through habitats it goes through water tables it's just the worst uh thing for the the local environment there but we're doing it again so uh good for us i just saw that and was uh kind of shocked i guess biden is feeling the heat on this issue right yeah, I think so. And I don't know why, because it's never going to pay yeah. off for him, no matter how he can build three a wall that's like three walls deep all across the border. And he's still never going to get any credit yeah, for the people he's the trying to appease. Yeah, I don't think between now and and uh, uh, 
an election contest with Trump, he can sell the narrative that the wall was actually his idea. I don't think I don't think he can turn the conventional wisdom around that fast. So So then this leads to why the hell is he doing something like this, which again leads into this larger question that we're talking about, which is this whole foreign policy thing. Like it's so obviously not in his political benefit. It's not going to make any real change on the ground, even for the reactionary policy that it's supposed to promote. And it's going to con- uh, concomitantly destroy the environment. So it's when you constantly see decisions like this, it's just what world are we actually living in? I think they are freaking out about the rate of inflow. Um, I mean, that's all I can. But I just don't. I just don't. It's surprising if he's thinking ahead to the general election. That's a little surprising because I would think he's still a little nervous about being uh, dethroned as a Democratic candidate at the last minute which wouldn't necessarily bother me, depending on who the replacement was. I but mean, it doesn't funny. sound like it would bother anybody, but that would be so... I mean, it's just such a long shot for yeah. a sitting president to to not get the nomination. I, 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 can't, I can't conceive of a scenario where that would happen. No, unless he dies, which could happen. Well, but then he, he doesn't have to worry sure, about it. But then, <laughs> yeah, he's not being unseated so much as... Yeah. Uh, as to rest. I, I think we can agree that if he dies, he will not be the candidate. Um, I don't know. I hear Feinstein's running again. Uh, there were there were a number of variations on that joke. Uh, the um, so yeah, uh, I, I don't know. Um, the and I guess you're right. He can't be probably can't be unseated. Uh, but hope, hope springs eternal. I really worry about a him versus Trump match. I mean, like what, Stephen? From a foreign policy point of view, what is to really root for there? Right? I mean. None of us likes Biden's foreign policy. And maybe we should talk a little bit about why. Um, and, you know, sometimes people say to me, uh, well, then, you know, if, if you're a restrainer, if you're against all this militarism, well, aren't you pretty happy with the Republican right wing, kind of the Matt Gates, Donald Trump version of this? I mean, those guys they are all want to invade Mexico. I was just going to say that exact <laughs> same thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these guys are crazy. I mean, that he assassinated Soleimani, almost got us into war with Iran. I mean, these guys are as hypocritical and dishonest as as uh, Biden's purported enforcement of the, quote, rules based order has been, given how often we ourselves has vi- have violated it. I mean, Trump is a complete outlaw. You know, I mean, he'll do anything. Uh you know, so well, I, all, know. I mean, most of these guys and I don't know, maybe there's exceptions. I try not to pay that much attention uh, to them, but it seems like for most of these people, uh, whatever, wherever they want to restrain, wherever they want to pull back, it's so that they can take whatever resources have been pulled back and put them into starting World War Three with China. Like, I don't I don't see the the real restraint here uh, from from any of these guys. No, that That's the other weird thing. I, in fact, it was the Trumpists who almost started the pivot toward Cold War with China. Early in the COVID thing, Steve Bannon started going berserk on China. And I mean, it, look, it's not surprising given COVID started in China, questions about Wuhan, blah, 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 that you'd get, you know, a little a little uh, tension. But they really amped it up. And that was the beginning of what has since become uh, an almost uh, consensus support for the cult. I don't know how you guys read yeah, it. Yeah, I think I mean, I think Trump was a clarifying period for a lot of people in, in U.S. foreign policy, which it had. I think a very um, 
uh, incoherent maybe uh, approach to China, kind of thrown together where we're engaging on the one hand, but also their arrival, and we want you know we're militarizing uh, Taiwan, and we're you know worried about this, but we you know we don't want to uh, go too far. And it was it was like straddling the fence, I think. And Trump came down off of the fence, and I think for a lot of people who were still kind of wobbling between those two approaches, the fact that Trump decisively said these guys are the enemy was clarifying it was it, it helped them kind of coalesce around that as the policy and this is actually to me pretty interesting when we're talking about the restrainer community because this is the major fault line within this restrainer community i think it, it, it restraint as a, as a policy in its modern form emerges from basically don't fight wars in the middle east and there's a lot of coalitions that could come together around that, whether you're a realist because you don't think it's that important, whether you're a leftist because you don't like imperialism. And I think that in the next few years, we're going to see the strength of this coalition, whether it could actually come together, because quite a few restrainers, most famously John Mersheimer, of course, they really want to confront China. I mean, they, right. they they have a very aggressive policy toward China, which essentially is as more of a left winger, um, to me, just looks like imperialism by another name. And so I think this is why the, the China issue is, is important for a number of reasons, both in, in sort of the day-to-day -day policy that we're talking about. Will it invade Taiwan? What will happen then? But also, what does this mean for the coalitional politics of um, basically critics of uh, U.S. foreign policy in the United States? And, and Bob, I'm curious, what, what do you think about that, who's someone who's a bit more connected to the Beltway um, than, than either me or Derek? Uh, I think it's been a while since I was very connected to the Beltway. I once was at a think tank. Like magazine of uh, Air Force One. <laughs> yeah, well, the New Republic days too. Yes, you're right. I'm I'm a total insider. Uh, um, I mean, there's that. I mean, I think there, there's two interesting splits. Kind of, there's the one you referred to within kind of the realist community. Although I think Mearsheimer is doesn't have a lot of company. Certainly, if you look at the intensity of his China hawkism. I don't think he has a lot of company in the realist community. His former co-author, Steve Walt, I don't think would go nearly as far as John is going. Walt is um, softer on it, but there's definitely a con, like, you can't yeah. really kind of dominate there in the realist community. It's, it's, there's a softer. You no, know, there, there is that. Yeah. I was going to say the second split is with, among restrainers within the progressive uh, community, uh, between, on the one hand, how they look at the Middle East, and on the other hand, how they look at Ukraine. Matt Duss is a good example. I really might like Matt, respect him. Uh, but on the Middle East, he's totally solid as far as I'm concerned. He's a little more hawkish than me when it comes to Ukraine, and that's not an uncommon thing. Like, What do you think that, why do you think that is? So uh, not to talk about Duss specifically, and if anyone's interested, I wrote something for the Quincy Institute where I ran through Matt's arguments in favor of Ukraine and 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 argued about you know against them but what do you think that is because to me it's such an obvious case if the US empire is going to ship arms around the world forever then you're not going to get yeah. rid of the empire you can't use it for good and then not expect yeah. it to be for bad it's very simple actually you know as history has proven time and time again so i don't quite understand the left well, hawkishness there. i mean i see I can see a case for being a little, uh, there's a little tension within me, and I'll explain that. Let me first say, I think actually probably a better example than Matt is Joe Cirincione, who just went, you know, he's like calling people. Well, he cut the coalition. Putin yeah. apologists. He's just like, he just left left the team. Uh, 
the uh, but but and, and, you know, Matt hasn't done that. But um, I think here's the tension I feel, which is, well, well, let me back up. I think with a lot of them, they have to some extent bought into the dem democracy versus autocracy framing narrative that the Biden administration is pushing, which I think is like the worst idea of my lifetime. Almost. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, the fact is that China is did not set out to turn the world into a bunch of autocracies. It just doesn't want us to tell it not to be one. OK, it's also so ridiculous, because if you look at the Belt and Road Initiative, it wasn't related to politics literally at all. No, like they just aid whoever for whatever reason. It's it's total ignorance. To it's like that. it's like us using the World Bank as an instrument of influence. It's a rival right. to the World Bank from their point of view. And meanwhile, they'd like to gain influence within the World Bank and so on. It's just. It, it, it's not that well, only um, we can do that. Only we could use international institutions. Well, well that's so, of no. course that's <laughs> the story of our foreign policy. We 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 continue to demand uh, to be treated like the world's only hegemon when that just isn't going to stay true forever. China's pretty powerful. Russia's kind of powerful. They've got nuclear weapons. You have to pay attention to what they want. A little. Um, I, I was going to say. So I think there's that, and it's funny. Uh, I had a conversation with Matt Dust a couple years ago. We were taking a walk at a conference, and I said it was during the presidential campaign, so it must have been uh, whenever that was. But he was on Bernie Sanders' staff at that point. He was his foreign policy advisor. And I said, I'm a little worried by how much emphasis you guys are putting on, like, our mission of wiping out authoritarianism around the world. You know, how much Bernie is talking that talk? Because I think that gets us into trouble. And, and, you know, it's a perfectly worthwhile aspiration to reduce the amount of authoritarianism and autocracy in the world, but I think to make it some kind of defining issue, you know, uh, foreign policy sounds a little neocon-ish. And he was like, no, no, no problem. Uh, we're, we're, you know, don't, don't worry. But I think there is a little of that dividing progressives on Ukraine. Now, my own source of tension is about international law, is about, look, Russia did invade. That's a violation of international law. I, I, uh, that's a bad thing. It's just that I would be more up for, uh, you know, uh, risking World War III to punish them if it weren't the case that our own violations of the exact same international law had uh, so degraded the norm of complying with the law that you're not getting much real benefit from enforcing it at this point until we start complying with it. That That's my thing. And I've talked a long time, so you guys should no, take it. Of course. And, and I, I've been thinking a lot about international law recently as well. I, I think this might be a case that we have to do, come up with an entirely new system at this point. I think that the, the system that was created in, in the 40s has just been so delegitimized over the last 75 years. And, and you need some sort of public buy-in for law to work. It needs some sort of legitimating force. And I think that could actually be something useful that the United States and China could work toward but there's clearly zero interest in that in the United States. So it seems like international law at this point is a chimera, except for some global South nations at some moments when people decide to pay attention. There was a moment of hope that you're too young to remember, but right after the Cold War ended, uh, oddly, the first Bush administration actually seemed to be taking international law kind of seriously. I mean, the Persian Gulf War, it was in response to a violation of international law. He Bush went through the Security Council. So the Persian Gulf War was a totally legal thing, justified by the UN Charter. Um, and he was, uh, uh, you know, then things started going haywire, I would say, in the Clinton administration. Kosovo was 
pretty clearly an illegal intervention. Not not the Bosnian intervention that went through the Security uh, Council, Kosovo illegal, and then you get you know with Bush you get just uh, Iraq and 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 so on, and it all falls apart. I, I think there was a moment after the Cold War when the U.S. could have exerted huge influence on on so, these norms. Bob, yeah. I have a question, and if we're talking this counterfactual, because I do think it's really important. Do you think there could be a genuine international law with a hegemon? Because to me, those seem to be almost contradictory. It would have to be a very wise and self-aware hegemon that understood right. that it was in its own its own interest, especially as its relative power was inevitably declining, that it was in its own interest to establish a world characterized by the rule of law. Could have happened. Uh, Clinton talked the talk. He he. He supposedly understood that our power was declining, but he didn't, uh, you know, walk the walk. He also set a NATO expansion into motion, which I think. And he gives up. He gives up on defense. I'm reading a great paper by Mike Brennis. He gave up on defense conversion very quickly by by 93, 94. Once the economy starts to look a little better, he's like, okay, we don't need to do defense conversion any longer. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, maybe there's like a two or three year period. But then this leads, you know, just as a historian, if you're looking at this concept, if if, that, if it's such a small window, it might suggest to me a, a basically the fundamental tension between hegemony and law, right? Like the, the Schmidtian tension of the who's the decision maker. Right. Basically, every American just says that the United States decides the state of exception, and it obviously arrogates to itself when it makes that decision. So it 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 leaves a, a very difficult position for promoters of international law and promoters of liberalism. I would say generally at the international level, it, it it's a it, liberalism itself has not functioned well at the level of the of the globe. Mm, uh, Derek, do you have anything to say about this? I have a little bit. I well, I'm I I, I I'm sympathetic with you, Bob, because I I I think. We'd all be much better off if the, there was actually a rules-based international order. But I, there isn't one, and I don't see the possibility for one. I mean, the United States, just just at a very fundamental level, to you have a country that has a law in its books that it will invade the Hague if one of its service members is picked up for war crimes. That that that's just like i mean that's just a small thing but it's such a stark example of the united states just saying this doesn't apply to us we talk about it and bill clinton talked a good game barack obama talked a good game they always talk a good game biden talks a good game but we are just in in our bones committed to the idea that none of this stuff that we talk about actually applies to us we're the exception that is a drawback uh, of my my dream world but uh the um i mean we all agree that things can't be great in the world until there's some kind of fundamental revision in american foreign policy right like what's the more realistic one what what's your scenario like like uh trump gets elected and then somebody lobotomizes him or something uh, i mean what i i mean i think it's so lost. I, yeah <laughs> i don't have a good scenario i mean this is where you can make help us with the happy time hour bob because uh, we're we're not uh happy yeah uh, we basically show. think like, we lost like like i mean that, I, I think we lost i think that we have we're on a clock now before climate change really wrecks everything and uh i don't see a way to 
get past this uh, hegemonic impulse to a place of real international law and real international cooperation in time to address what's coming. I mean, I, if we're, let me, I could be a little hopeful. Okay, let's be a little hopeful. I think that there is a particular state formation that has developed in the United States that is extraordinarily anti-democratic. If we make the state a little bit more anti-democratic, I do think that Americans' impulses, once like the war fever of something stops, are is generally towards non-intervention and non-adventurism. I think that's a long-standing American tradition going back to the foreign entanglements, farewell address of George Washington. So I do think if we do want to have this sort of less hegemonic impulse, it has to start at home, basically. I think that would be the site of action, which is kind of ironic because leftists are traditionally internationalist. But I would say this 20th and 21st century have just demonstrated for whatever either structural or contingent reasons that left internationalism was never an especially viable project when it came to taming international relations or ending war. So I would say the site is really domestic and really in state reform and democratization of the American state. Yeah, but see, I don't think even extreme skepticism about military intervention is enough. I mean, I, I my reading on the direction of technological evolution is that we're going to have to get very serious about global governance, you know, not just because of uh, climate change. I wish I thought that was the worst problem we face. I, I actually think biotech and even AI are are things it's more important. Um, I, I mean, things that in principle pose a nearer term risk of like radical destabilization of the world and, and even death and suffering. Um, and so I'm just not, you know, that's another reason that the, the, the Trumpist vision just isn't enough for me. These guys are anti-global governance. They are national sovereignty obsessives and don't understand that to really, in a certain sense, to preserve sovereignty in the sense of America exerting control over its own fate, you have to sacrifice certain kinds of sovereignty and 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 enter into some of these international treaties and so on. So I I, I worry that's uh but but not- then to me this goes to the heart of what it means to be an American. So so I would say since the 1960s at least, consumption has been the basic form of legitimacy for American politics. It, it's how much one is able to consume. And the consumption relies on the United States being at the top of the of the global chain, supply chain and the global capitalist consumption chain. I mean, you guys might know the exact statistic, but what is the percentage of energy Americans use? They're 4% of the population. They use 20% or 25% of all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So to me, that is like the fundamental brick wall is that you have a political system whose legitimacy relies on excessive consumption, and that consumption relies on American hegemony. So that's one brick wall. And then the other problem is that other nations, particularly China and India, are also organizing their politics around consumptive practices. And if they consume like Americans, there's no hope, which again, always, and I won't go into it, but this then brings us to the problem of capitalism itself. I knew we'd get there. <laughs> <laughs> Bob, can we can can you talk a little bit more about uh, your concerns with AI? Because this isn't something that Danny and I have talked about on our show, but I'm I'm interested 
in hearing about it from somebody who is not a Silicon Valley tech bro, humble bragging about how the thing that the code that he yeah. just wrote could destroy the world, which I think is just a sales pitch, basically. But I'm, I'm so I'm interested in in what your uh, concerns are. Yeah, mine isn't really. I'm agnostic on on that uh, nightmare scenario. Like, will it turn into this super Sky intelligence net, yeah. that will almost choose to subjugate us and? Uh, I don't know, maybe eventually. I I'm more worried about near-term destabilization along a number of fronts. It's just going to happen very fast. Just take uh, employment alone, okay? It is going to displace people from their jobs. Now, uh, the, the standard reaction uh, of kind of techno-optimists and a number of economists as well in the long run, uh, often, you know, typically tech revolutions create more jobs than they destroy. Uh, well, first of all, there there are dissents on on that. Not all economists believe that. But even if that's the case, like even if all these people are displaced and they eventually find another job, that is disorienting and destabilizing. It's not fun to lose your job. And if that happens fast enough, that's an issue. And and then I could I could list a number of other dimensions along which I think there's going to be ra rapid uh, change. Uh, I mean, for example, this is in a way, continuation of the social media uh, revolution with the downsides that apparently had so far as kind of tribalization, polarization. I think this extends that. Uh, this is famously something that, quote, bad actors can put to use to like, you know, turn out the lights all over the planet. I, I think I think all these things are soluble in the long run. But a I think dealing with them is often going to call for forms of international governance that are nowhere near being in place. That's going to take time. And uh, B, um, even if it were at the national policymaking level, well, our, our, our national governance is a complete shambles. You can't expect intelligent policy to emerge, uh, you know, especially in a near term time frame. So Bob, I have a quick question. So like when we talk about automation and stuff like that, the, the difference between what's coming in, in, in the next few years with AI is it's really going to affect middle and upper middle class professionals. It's going to mm -hmm. be much easier to ask AI to write a contract than it is to pay. Yeah, a lawyer this, this was my question. Too. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. So like, how does that affect it? Because what happened in the 80s, the 70s, 80s and 90s with deindustrialization broadly in the Rust Belt, but also, you know, the automation of things like logging is that it destroyed the blue collar classes. Uh, and now uh, the working right, classes. Just, it wrecked relatively politically powerless classes. Right, and I right. wonder, yeah, I think this is where you're going, Danny, as you get, as it as we start to automate things that like people who give money to candidates or give money to parties and have political influence, uh, is it, it could it broaden the case for something like universal basic income or uh, some some way to ameliorate? I think uh, there will be new coalitions and uh, I, it's hard to predict. I mean, I think the people who have enough money to donate a lot to candidates are probably going to get through this okay. Uh, but for a while, but look, it, it's it's moving up the food chain and it's going to move pretty fast. And uh, so I, I, I think it's unpredictable um, and maybe some good will come out of some of the new coalitions that form. Uh, but I, I just... Um, you know, look, I'm a worrier. Maybe I'm wrong about all this. Well, uh, well th this raises interesting questions about the future of work itself and sort of the the, the getting rid of, uh, was it David 
was it David Graeber, the bullshit jobs thing, which is basically the professional managerial class, you know, the proverbial email job. What what does this mean when when work itself as traditionally imagined in the United States goes away? Obviously, there's the Marxist mm. hope, you know, fishing in the morning, criticizing in the afternoon, et cetera. But like we don't seem to have any social context for imagining yeah. that, let alone a culture that would promote sort of human flourishing as we, opposed to- We don't have a society. I mean, you, Bob, you, Bob talked about social media. Like nobody does anything with anybody anymore. It's so atomized. Mm. Everybody's so kind of well, on their own. AI could make it much worse. Yeah. I mean, uh, the metaverse, I don't think Zuckerberg's wrong about the metaverse. I just think he's wrong about the time frame and the point of mystery he chose to try to exploit it. I mean, the, the uh, you know, just by the way, we should I should consult with you on, on what we do here. So our plan is and this is, uh, of course, Danny disapproves of this because this is a capitalist plot in itself. Our plan for revenue generation, uh, what we thought we would do with these podcasts generally is, you know, have a, a, a decent length conversation this public. And at some point, the paywall comes down. Uh, just because a person's got to make a living, even Danny might, in some sense. I see he's Socialists muted his mic. Best what? Capitalists. Socialists what? make the best capitalists. Oh, always. good. Well, then I'm we glad we got you. What it is. <laughs> That's why we got you on our team, Danny, uh, for <laughs> marketing advice. Um, so anyway, the uh, this this is going to be on both of our podcast feeds, uh, American Prestige and Non-Zero, and the paywall is going to descend at some point in these conversations. And I guess uh, since uh, I guess this one is going to descend before long uh, in this in this podcast. But before that happens, we should say that. Um, so if you subscribe to either uh, non-zero newsletter or I mean, if you're a paid subscriber to non-zero newsletter or you're uh, a paid subscriber to American Prestige, you get this. But we're going to try to work out some kind of joint. Uh, you t- you tell me, Derek. What's our plan? Some kind of money yeah, saving so, uh, thing. So Andrew and I have talked about this. We're we're you get twenty percent off your first year subscription to the other uh, show. So if you're a subscriber to Non-Zero and you want to subscribe to American Prestige, you get twenty percent off a year, uh, and vice versa. Uh, we have special links for this, uh, which uh, you can do in Substack. Discount links that'll be in mm-hmm. the show description, uh, but they'll be after the paywall so you know you gotta you gotta be subscribed to to one of us to to get the link to the other okay that's the way it works so there will be links in the show notes to this podcast but to get the link you you have to first subscribe to one of us and then you'll find the link to the 20 percent discount for the other is that it for the other one that's it got it that's genius so glad so glad you guys are part of this marketing <laughs> we're that's right we're uh you know scheming scheming away uh, is this the future of media this is going to be the new york times and 50 million independent things basically that's yeah. what we're it's cra- i mean it's crazy like it's i, I uh, heard isn't like someone's ratings is it is it cnn's ratings are down like to a third of what they were over trump like yeah. it, it just seems like this is the end you know trump was that dead cat bounce and now we're we're heading into well, but a, I mean, he's going to be back. He's going to be back for the next year. They're going to have all the yeah, the but campaign reboots are never again. good. Reboots, yeah, are never yeah, good. yeah, yeah. But it's, you can certainly, I mean, you can see why. You know, they have all these people on, you know, CNN and MSNBC, whatever, to to talk about how awful Trump is. But man, they cover the shit out of him because 
He's good for ratings. Mm. A lot of free media for that guy. So is the is the paywall descending now? Should we say thank you sure. to all who who and even if you don't sign up uh, and give us your hard earned money, we love you. Thanks for giving us your time. Love Thanks you. for giving us your time. We However, love, I'm not going to lie. We'd love you. The, the, the money if... would be better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So we're headed into, into overtime. And thanks to everybody. And here we go.